So I wanted to really start with teach, start the teaching with the seven factors of enlightenment and uh, do that particular um, uh, strong invitation to you to uh, see if you could use that time really not just to relax but to work at cultivating concentration. It's a little harder than just sitting there, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to sit and relax. It's not bad to sit and relax, but all of a sudden, how was it? Good? What was good? What was good? Somebody said it was good. I said it was hard. Oh, what, what was hard, Cynthia? This is a very interesting point. I'm trying to decide. I have a ton of things to say because I could talk for an hour on that very point. Did you hear what Cynthia said? What happened? Maybe it's important. Maybe I not talk for an hour. Maybe I talk fast. There's a very, very completely important point. She said, you know, it was hard. Cynthia has meditated on retreat, off retreat for a lot of years, so she knows about meditation. She knows about concentration, cultivation. She said, you know, as soon as I started to do that, you really have to make an effort. The ten top problems of my life surfaced, and all of a sudden, creative solutions, and the key of what I'm about to say is the word creative, arose. And then the question was, can I you know, develop those creative solutions? Because they do, of course, arise. Or should I go back to the concentration? <coughs> so it's tremendous. It's, if you had said, and I imagine, as you started to talk, Cynthia, I thought you might. You know, as I began to concentrate, the ten top stories of the problems of my life came up, and I started to agitate about that and worry about that and uh, berate myself about that or plan for that, then I would have said, oh, no, go back to the, you know, really try to cultivate the concentration, go back to the breath. But you didn't say that. You said the top, you know, all of a sudden, ah, ah, ah. The point, this particular, the word vipassana, which is the word that we are now mostly saying mindfulness for, and we could talk about how they might be a little bit different, but the word vipassana in its uh, root meaning means seeing clearly. My biggest sense, and really what I want to talk about today, is that if we really, really saw clearly, our hearts would be converted to peace and to love and to equanimity and to... Bow- and, and to uh, well, our hearts would be converted to peace and to love through that, that we would maintain a level of concentration because we wouldn't get so caught up in these millions of things that catch up the mind and cause it to recreate turmoil stories all the time. The biggest thing is that we would see clearly and express ourselves with compassion and kindness and the world would be different. That's my, that's, that's my compelling reason to be doing this. I, I have that as such a part of my question when I ask people, what's your practice and what's your doing? What do you do? I really want to know what's it meant to do to you, not just what do you do. You know, whatever practice people do, uh, you know, whether or not it looks... Uh, people have practices. Somebody said to me the other day, my, my practice is music, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And, uh, it calms my mind, it focuses me in, in the moment, and the commitment in that person's life is not just to make music, but have a peaceful heart in the world. So one of that person's practices is the making of music because it actually aids in creating the kind of uplifted heart and clear mind that leads to making good decisions in the world. So they're not making their music all the time but the music is in support of what they want to do with their life. Let's go back to Cynthia's question and answer so we can make us at least... 
One of the things about stopping the stories by concentrating even a little is that uh, intuitions about what's really true, intuitions about what's really the truest things about life, that things come and go, that problems of this moment are of this moment, that there are ways to think clearly that a peaceful heart is possible, that struggling with situations uh, that can't be changed makes them more painful, that everything that arises, pleasant or unpleasant, is the result of other circumstances. All the things that are completely true all the time come back, like wisdom restores itself in the mind. So one of the things that we tend to say when we teach about meditation is we want for that intuitive direct knowledge to come into our mind. We really need to see clearly again. All those facts are there, but I don't always see them clearly. So a little bit of concentration, and I remember what's true. I see clearly. Now, another, little, another thing that's true is a little bit of concentration, and I see clearly what I want to do in certain circumstances. So that instead, it's like a different category. I see clearly what's universally true. And often, I see clearly what I ought to do in certain discrete circumstances in my life. And uh, when I f first heard about meditation and what insight was, and that insight had to do with insight about one's body or insight about one's psychological connections or the, the workings of one's own mind in relationship in this life, and then insight about what's true on the largest sense. The largest sense sounded like the most noble. If I had any other insight, that's like a low-class insight. I should forget about it and just look for the noble insights. But if I suddenly had a great insight about how my relationship with so-and-so could be restored and what I would need to do, that might so um, uplift my heart that maybe bigger insights would be available to me. So just we'll leave that for that now, Cynthia. But I want to leave, I want to mark in my mind and in yours, you can, we'll, we'll do it again, that there, that um, I want to say that it's about seeing things in a new way, seeing the truth of life once again in a new way, seeing one's own life and its problems in a new way, and that creativity in different ways, because that's a creative thing. Like Cynthia was saying, creative solutions is creative to see your life in a new way. It's creative to think of how to write a poem, or to have a poem come up in your mind, or to write music. So I think that all of those creativities, when people write a new piece of music, they haven't made up new notes. They're using the same notes, but they just fall together in a different way. When people write poetry, they're not making up new words. They just fall together in a new way. So I want to talk about that, 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 com that composing the mind, which comes through concentration, leaves room for creativity. Creativity in the largest sense. Ah, I see what's really true. And creativity in discrete and personal sense. I see what I should do in my life. The answer to the question about where should I go, I suppose if you saw creative solutions, say, wow, look at that, and that, and that, and that, and that. And later on, when I take care of that, I'll sit again. Who knows what other things I'll creatively solve today. And I'm very interested in the deep concentration that comes from really cultivating it. So we do more about that later. Okay, so that's how you were with that. I want to talk a little bit about what is enlightenment. So that's why I wanted to, uh, this morning when I was uh, thinking about, I wish I was home so I could have taken uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is because I remembered this, um, this paragraph from um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's, the, it's a compilation of the teachings of Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center and the teacher of uh, Lou Richmond and um, Yvonne Rand and Norm Fisher. And many of our Zen friends were the direct, are the direct lineage holders from Suzuki. So this is Houston Smith uh, talking about visiting Suzuki Roshi. 
when four months before his death, I had the opportunity to ask him why Satori, which is a word that people use a lot to mean a kind of uh, enlightenment experience, didn't figure in his book. His wife leaned toward me and whispered impishly, it's because he hasn't had it. Whereupon the Roshi batted his fan at her in mock consternation and with finger to his lips, his shh, don't tell him. <laughs> when our last laughter had subsided, he said simply, it's not that Satori is unimportant, but it's not the part of Zen that needs to be stressed. So what's the part of Zen that needs to be stressed? What's the part of our practice that needs to be stressed? What is really important is what I've been thinking about. So I'll talk a little bit, and more and more through the course of this morning, about what is Satori. Uh, one of my friends, I, I had the great benefit yesterday of, uh, uh, yesterday being the day that I met with the group of Dharma buddies that I uh, meet with six or eight times a year. There are less than a dozen of us, less than 10 actually, um, who meet uh, six or eight times a year. Uh, we represent uh, this tradition of Buddhism, and there are a couple of Zen teachers and a couple of Tibetan teachers. And we've been buddies. We've been doing this for 10 years together. And I feel tremendously fortunate because uh, we are a great support group for each other. And we talk about our lives mostly, and we talk about what we're teaching, and we talk about what we know and what we believe. And, what we understand and what we've come to think is important now that we're old, 10 years older than we were 10 years ago anyway. And uh, we laugh about what we're going to talk about when we're really old because all of us go back a lot. And you know, we tell all these stories of when I was here and when I was there and when I knew this one and I knew that one. So we feel very blessed. Um, but in the beginning of my practice, when I started to study this practice, this is where we talked yesterday about what's enlightenment and what's the experience of stream entry, which is the name in this tradition, in our tradition, for the first clear glimpse of what's true that's so definitive that it's not possible to go back to a completely asleep mind again, or so the, so the sages say. In this particular tradition, there are four levels of enlightenment. You have the stream entry experience, after which certain things are changed about you forever. You see certain things so directly, you cannot make a mistake again well, I'll tell you what you can't make a mistake again about. You cannot again think that um, it's not possible to uh, obtain, to reach peace of mind in this life, in this heart. You really believe it, that peace is a possibility, that that uh, third noble truth of the Buddha, peace is possible. You really know it because you experience it. In that moment, which is a moment absolutely devoid of a separate self, it's a moment in which you're not asleep. The, the, the experience is sometimes called a cessation. But what ceases in that moment is the experience of anything that's separate from anything else. The, the a point of view that we normally have of this is me looking out having these experiences and owning them, shifts for some short or long period of time to the awareness that this is all arising in a magical, um, codependent, codependence is a complicated word, <laughs> a, magic, a magically lawful way, dependent on conditions and causing conditions, but with nothing that is not part of the whole lawful cosmic unfolding. Nothing that remains separate from it, watching it. No, nothing apart from it. 
in uh, Pali, that the word for that expression is the, it's the doctrine of anatta, non-self, no separate thing apart from everything. In other religions, it gets talked about as the experience of oneness, not the hypothetical oneness or a metaphorical oneness, but the natural oneness. When you think about it, it's hard to get that, that notion sometimes, but when you think about, sometimes when I think about, um, or when I actually can have the experience that there's no one here who breathes. Breath goes in, breath goes out, breath goes in, breath goes out. This body remains viable, up to now anyway, because these lungs are still viable, and because there's enough greenery out in the world and enough trees uh, to be making oxygen, to be refreshing the air enough with oxygen, so that everything in this moment is alive because that those particular things are alive. But there's no one apart who's making it happen. It's just all happening. This is part of the cosmic unfolding. It'll be here for as long as it's here, and then it won't be. Even the sense of a separate I that has, uh, that, that uh, remains the teller of the stories and feels that she is so much here. That's actually contingent, it's a heuristic event that rises and passes away, sometimes here and not here. One of the things about the moment of shift of view, where the point of reference is not the separate self, is that it, there's no suffering in it. You have to be a, someone there to suffer. I remember that was one of the first lines I heard from my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, that was so interesting to me. He said, if there's anyone home, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. <laughs> you know? As long as, there's a, as long as there's someone whose story has to be protected, whose life has to be protected, whose ego has to be protected. So we talked about, I want to come back to that a little more, but I want to say that the, because I told you there were three things that went away from that moment of uh, clear awareness that there's no one there. This is just unfolding. Um, endless, impermanent unfoldings of conditioned arisings. The three things fall away according to what the Buddha taught. One of them was any doubt that it's true that peace is possible. That was the first one that I said. The second was a reliance on rites and rituals. Um, that there isn't anything that, the, the thought that something will accomplish this for me if I do this rite or that ritual, that'll make it happen that clearly the, uh, that arising freedom is the result of clear seeing. It's not the result of an external thing that you can do or have someone do for you. I thought about that a little bit. We can come back and talk about that because I've been thinking about this last week with all the rituals surrounding this very prominent death of John Paul II, but the rituals surrounding other people's deaths. I was so particularly moved this morning. I, yeah, I, I was moved by all of our sharing. But someone over here said, a baby girl is getting born just now. And someone over here said a woman died just yesterday. And I thought, you know, we have all the ends of coming and going and coming and going and coming and going and everything in between. And that we celebrate those events, the coming and the going, with rites and rituals. 
and the value of rites and rituals to um, heal our hearts and mark important moments. So this particular um, uh, teaching of the Buddha that reliance on rites and rituals um, falls away. I don't want to take anything away from the value of rites and rituals. I think they hold up the heart, they direct the consciousness in certain ways, they help the mind to discover certain things. So the word is reliance on them. And the third that it is that uh, that particular experience really makes it clear that there is no permanent and abiding separate self that's having all this experience. There isn't a me in here looking out of the that never changes, that looks out of these eyes and looks, hears through these ears, feels like that a lot. Um, but that that sense of I is contingent on experiences, in, experiences happening and a certain amount of identification with them. I can have experiences and I can even use the personal I. I saw a great woodpecker flying past my house yesterday, the, one of those pileated ones, or I did this or I did that, because they make a story. But, and it's less cumbersome to say than the experience happened yesterday of seeing a woodpecker flying by. You know, it gets tedious if you start to talk in the third person. But uh, the consciousness of that moment is the difference from the consciousness of this. So what we could talk about, and probably will, as we go along, so what will that make, does that necessarily, because it should, begin to uh, lessen the fear of death that people have. There's no one there. This is just part of the changing flow. What does that do about things like fear of death? What does it do for you? Or does it do something else that's more important? Um, so I'm just going to put that out for a question that we can think about for a while. Most of our discussion yesterday about stream entry, which we decided was um, about the same as a Kensho experience in Zen, or about the same as the pointing of the view or seeing the view. It, the Tibetans talk about all of a sudden seeing the view they see in a new way. The Kensho experience, you see in a new way. This experience of realizing, <gasps> no one there. It's all of a piece. You see in a new way. So here is uh, Suzuki saying, we don't emphasize that. What do we emphasize? Well, in, in Soto Zen, they very much emphasize the ability to sit peacefully. So I was thinking that this morning as being, um, actually, I got it this morning when I thought about it better than I have before. I thought to myself, that probably is a manifestation of the understanding that it's all arising and passing away. No one who owns it, nothing that's personal, nothing that's permanent. That the ability to sit down peacefully and not tell the stories for a little bit. That was hard to not tell the stories, wasn't it? I sit down, and a story, it seems to me, I have the experience that a story somehow floats in from left field. Don't you have that feeling? Here you are nicely concentrating on the coming and going of the breath. Does a story not float? Why do you feel about it? How does a story arise for you? You're sitting out in, out in, in, out in, out. What happens, Pasquale? Uh, some old experience comes up and all of a sudden, da, 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 da. <laughs> so Pasquale says, some old experience, all of a sudden it's back, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it goes out, it's like someone puts on the tape in the tape deck. What, what else? How does it happen for you? Can you see it coming? Or is it just all of a sudden playing on the screen? What, Connie? It's like lightning. It's just oh, there. All of a sudden, yeah. it's there. What else, Jamie? Yeah. I'm, I'm heading for a, 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 my breath, a buoy. Yeah. And suddenly I'm like... <laughs> 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 I have to stare back the boat. Yeah. And then, then 
I'm over here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. This is very good for me to hear all the different ways. What else happens to you? Susan. I see, I see a cloud comes on. It's like a cloud floats in. Yeah. And then you told us about words, and I just say sunshine, and then it pushes the cloud away. Did you hear that? That's, a, that's an interesting instruction. Susan said, I'll do it because I have the microphone, that as she's sitting, and it's like a cloud floats in. And she says, her technique is she says the word sunshine. And the clouds dispel, and she's back again. I think it's great that we share techniques with ourselves. I sometimes say to myself, you want to do this? And I usually don't. You know, whatever it is that's begun to play. But do you want to do this? Like, really? You'd rather be here than peaceful? Are you choosing this? I thought we might practice just for a minute. Another of the factors of enlightenment. There are seven, by the way. Concentration is one of them. There are three that are the calming, the are the calming factors. Three that are the enlivening factors, and one that's the balancing factor. The three calming factors are um, concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. The three um, rousing factors are uh, rapture, um, energy, and uh, investigation. And the balancing factor is mindfulness. And there's a way of saying mindfulness is uh, apart from all of them, or there's a way of saying mindfulness is what, it's kind of like the equation, A plus B plus C equals C plus B plus A, or something like that. And they balance each other out in a certain way. Rapture uh, in uh, uh, meditation teaching, or the, the way we use the word rapture, is different from the way we use it uh, in common speech. We say things like, uh, I was enraptured by something. It usually means I loved it uh, and uh, caught up in it. Um, rapture in the specific generic meditation vocabulary means an enhanced awareness of one's body in one or another way. People have experiences of piti, is the Pali word. And it means your body in some way does something that captivates the consciousness more. You say, whoa, all of a sudden I'm hot, or all of a sudden I'm cold, or all of a sudden, sometimes people will say, my whole body is alive. I can feel it just sparkling all over, or... uh, Sometimes when you see people meditating in meditation halls, they shake. They rock a little bit from side to side. And then when they come to see me in an interview, they say, I don't know what's happening to me. I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden my body is rocking, and I'm not doing it. Something is happening. And something is happening. Energy is moving in the body in some different way. And also the attention is more awake to the kind of subtle cues in the body. Because sometimes it feels like it's rocking and it's actually not so rocking. Sometimes it's visible. Sometimes people say, I feel pins and needles all over my body. And sometimes people say, I feel sparkles all over my body. So that kind of aroused energy just sometimes appears and it's unpleasant. Pins and needles is not so pleasant. Sparkles is usually pleasant to people. And it just has to do with energy in the mind and how much composure there is and um, the, the ways to work with it, those kinds of uh, states meditatively is not to necessarily, is not to, it's just to know about them and to be able to experience them and feel them and recognize this is pleasant. Oh, lovely. Can I not get too occupied with it but use it to pick up my heart? Oh, this is not so pleasant. I wonder if I could take a deep breath in and bring a little bit more calm into my body and see if it'll change without hating it. They're all an opportunity to not grasp or push away and to really make wise discernment. But they're also a reflection of a certain amount of concentration in the mind. Mind concentrates. The body is more apparent in some way. 
It's also a way that pleasant PT in the body, pleasant rapture, really picks up the heart and the mind. Do you remember when Liz Liz, I saw Liz Liz, uh, a few weeks ago, twice, you want to do it now? Do it right now. Because see, I can't do it as well as you. Do the, okay, come up here. <laughs> Sit over here. Right here. No, I'll give you the microphone. This is a rapture exercise. There you go. Can you reach? How many people have not done this before? Good. This is Liz. Hi. Okay, so I need you all to face each other. So one side facing the other side. This side facing that side. The whole room? Yeah, whole room. So this side will turn to face this side, and this side will turn to face this side. And just take a moment to really see one another, whatever that means for you. And close your eyes. Come into contact with the color of your heart in this moment. Dropping your awareness into your heart center. And I'll ask you to open your eyes and to continue doing this exercise while looking at one another. <coughs> We're going to start to feel giggles making their way up our body. So it's going to start in our feet. So wherever your feet are contacting the ground, whether you're sitting on the ground or sitting on a chair, Start to feel the effervescence of laughter moving into them from the earth. So you might feel it like bubbles. Maybe it's butterflies tickling the soles of your feet as they move upward. So it's not necessarily manifest anywhere right now in your body except for in your feet. Slowly these bubbles are starting to move up into your legs. These are bubbles of laughter. Bubbles of love. Moving up into your legs. How do your legs feel different? Moving the bubbles up into your knees now. Seeing each other in this experience, you might start to see some smiles prematurely. Moving those bubbles upwards into your thighs now. Bubbles of laughter. Bubbles of giggles. Moving them upwards now. Bubbles of humor into your butt. There's some bubbles there moving around in your pelvis. <clears throat> the laughter is moving up, up, up into your belly now. We have lots of bubbles, effervescence in our belly. Laughter, love, moving that laughter up into your chest. It's moving up into your throat now, and now it's going to not be able to contain itself any longer as it moves into your head. And whether you feel it or not, I want you to start to giggle, start to laugh. Whether you feel comfortable or not, start to laugh. How does it change things? Moving the bubbles up into the crown of your head. It's filling your whole body now. You're full of laughter, full of joy. Let me see it. Let me hear it. See each other laughing. Holding the laughter within the space, in between each other. Bounce it off of each other in the space. Send it to one another. Laughing. Slowly letting it go. Taking a deep breath in. <coughs> Seeing the smiles on each other's faces. Closing your eyes. Noticing the color of your heart now. Has it changed? And open your eyes. So Liz said, do you want to ring the bell? I said, no, because I want everybody to close their eyes for one more minute. Well, close, close, close. 
and see if your body feels different now. And tell me if it does. What feels different? Well, how? More relaxed. More relaxed. Lighter. Lighter. Cleaner. Cleaner. Tingling. Sparkling. Balanced. Aware. Aware. Full of light. Alive. Energized. So first of all, we could just listen to that uh, sort of academically, aha, this would be good to have if you had a lot of concentration. Those would be all things that would uh, bring uh, um, energy into the concentration and pick it up so it didn't get too uh, heavy. It's also a lesson, I think, always, I think to myself, how dramatically it's a lesson and how fast the mind states can change, you know, that we can, we can go from sort of ground zero, or maybe lower than zero, who knows, but it's that ground something. And we can, by someone suggesting that we can, pick it up, that the mind states are so malleable, you know, that um, they change. I want to tell a story. Nancy, can you tell a story or shall I? Because I wrote down what you told me about Randy last week. You want to do it or you want me to do it? You can do it. Yeah? Uh, you tell me if I do the story back right. Okay. Okay, you tell me if I do it right. Because Nancy told me this story last week. Uh, you remember the week before we had talked about that uh, this is, I think, why she thought particularly to tell me the story. Among other things, it's a great story on its own. But the prelude to it is we had this, we had uh, remarked in some way. I had, or you had, somebody had, the week before about the turkeys out here that are so improbable. You know that they, you know, going around doing that display. Really, you know that. And this is the turkey mating season, so they're more unusual than. I mean, what was God thinking? You know, this is this like. Uh, uh, so we were talking about turkeys, and we talking about that if you run into these turkeys here, they just pick up your heart, no matter what's going on in my mind, it falls away because the turkeys are there. You think, wow. So Nancy came up at the end of class last week to tell me this story. She said, last night I came home. And I turned on my answering machine, and I heard this message. The message said, Nancy, this is Randy. I'm calling you from my car. I uh, was just at the doctor's. My biopsy is not good. My lymphoma is back. The doctors don't know what they're going to do about it. Oh, my God. There are turkeys about to cross the highway. I hope they get to the other side safe. Call me back later, okay? <laughs> Did I do that well? Yeah. I went home and I wrote it down because it's it's a, it's it's actually the whole story. So tell me why it's a good story. It's a great story, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, just this. She went from the self-centered view of wanting seeing the whole world, and yeah. her love and her heart stayed open. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me of your name. Stephen. Stephen. So here it is. In the middle, I have lymphoma. It's back. They don't know what to do. I hope the turkeys make it to the other side <laughs> safe. It's such a statement about what human beings' hearts are like. It's such a statement of what we can do in the middle of everything. That's a, a catastrophic moment. Your lymphoma <coughs> is back. We don't know what to do. But the turkeys. Right. And it could have been anything. It could have been the turkeys, could have been a person, could have been anything. Something needs something now. And you forget your own for a minute. Isn't that the whole of the Dharma, really? Mm -hmm. How to remember that something is always needing something. We have the choice of being involved with something is always needing something, or with our own particular story and its unfolding. And it's way more liberating for me to be caught up in other people, not denying my own story, 
but not captivated by my own story, not held hostage by my own story. Because that means if my story is worse today, more complex than yesterday, it means I'm held hostage by that story. I can either notice the world or not notice the world. And I miss the whole world and the possibility of connecting with compassion, which I absolutely am convinced is the path to peace that the path that some return to love in some form, even love for myself, a return to love in some form is always the direct route to peace. And I think it's related to seeing clearly what's going on that some clear understanding of interconnectedness. The story of the turkeys is not separate from my story. Everyone is struggling. When we sit at the end of our time together, and we mention the people who we're thinking about who are in a special struggle at this point, I feel um, somehow that it's the whole of the Dharma. Everyone is struggling with something or other. And the realm of things to struggle with is you know, so enormous. Illnesses and addictions and losses and depressions. And And actually for me, it's, uh, I, I, it suddenly came into my mind early on I remember someone saying to me, Buddhism is so depressing. All you talk about is all the suffering in the world. Actually, I don't think it's depressing. I think it's, um, it was, for me, tremendously reassuring to meet teachers who talked about it so straightforwardly, straight out. They didn't say that every moment of life was painful and that life wasn't precious and that human life wasn't particularly precious or that peace wasn't possible in the middle of it. They said all that. And they also said it's continually challenging. And I think that's true. It's continually challenging. It can't be otherwise, alive in a body, in relationships. It can't be otherwise. But to say there's a clear-minded way <coughs> to recognize that every action has consequences. What I do is making the karma of the rest of my life and everybody else's. There's a way to live with composure and with delight and celebration in the middle of it. We could even stop and laugh, just like that, for no reason. Took a laugh break. Mm -hmm. you know? Like sometimes people take a, um, a walk around the block during the day or a stretch break or some other kind of a break. Take a laugh break. I think I told you last week that uh, did I that I had uh, uh, read that that uh, about the advertising campaign? Did I tell you that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did tell you that. So I don't have to do it again. The 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 the, the, the most successful advertising logo of the twentieth century was an ad for McDonald's, uh, and in 1971, and the text of the ad was "You deserve a break." It didn't say you deserve a better hamburger or you should have a better hamburger. But it sold a tremendous number of hamburgers because everybody so wants a break. We have these incessant minds that just create the story minute after minute after minute to be able to stop the mind and really realize firsthand it's not about me. It's not my story. It's the story. That's the shift in perspective. That's the Kensho moment. That's the release from the being held hostage by the sense of a separate person having this life. I'm going to make sure I tell you everything. Well, I won't tell you everything, but we'll see how far we get. We'll have to come back next week and find the rest of the everything. <laughs>
<laughs> I see that we're not going to practice all seven factors today. We did concentration and we did rapture. Let's do one minute of uh, the tranquility meditation that I like the best. Just one minute, so that because I do have something else I really want to tell you about. I want to talk about towards what end, seeing clearly, really. Towards what end. So here's the tranquility meditation that I like the most. It's Thich Nhat Hanh. You can do it on a minute's worth of breathing. The, the intention to hold in the mind as you do it is this. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. And really do it. Ready, set, go. like that? That's a good meditation. It works, doesn't it? You feel it in your body. So in that one minute, it came to me, there, there are at least two pieces of what I've prepared that I want to do now, because they both have to do with what would happen if we suddenly would see clearly in a non-ego-centered way. One is I think we would absolutely be awake to the needs of other people as being as compelling as our own. This is a continuation, really, of the turkey should get to the other side. Other people have needs. Uh, somebody brought me this last week, and someone else sent it to me. It was uh, a section out of uh, two weeks ago, Chronicle, Sunday, March 27th. Did you see this? These are people sleeping in the pews of St. Boniface. Do you remember this? Did you read this? Anyway, so I will remind you of this. This is people sleeping in the pews of St. Boniface Church in San Francisco. It's a big old Francisco, Franciscan church in the Tenderloin. The priest is Father Louis Vitali. Father Vitali, you and I met, because he was at the prayer vigil uh, that protested the bombing of Iraq two years ago. Uh, he had just gotten out from jail, from having done jail time, from protesting something else. And uh, he was back, uh, purposely sitting in, purposely getting arrested. This is Father Vitali's church, which opens its doors at 6.30 every morning, they've got a photo in here of Father Vitali himself opening the doors of the church, particularly for homeless who are afraid to lie down in doorways and sleep in the night because terrible things happen to people who fall asleep. They, they get harmed in some way. So it's apparently for many people a safer course to just walk up and down the streets all night long pushing their carts and carrying their stuff around and waiting for the doors to open at St. Boniface. And they come in, apparently. It's a very touching description. Lie down in the pews, cover themselves. The whole back third of the church is filled with people lying in the pews. They come in, and according to the writer, they're asleep in 30 seconds. And they sleep until 2.30 in the afternoon. And during which time, you know, they, they have to leave at 2.30 again. Um, 
but in between they can use the toilets in the in the church to clean up to wash up to use and they can sleep knowing that they're not going to be harmed so they can come in and sleep peacefully and they talk about the uh, um, the work of uh, the the parish workers at uh, the church and the, I was particularly taken by they interview a lot of the people who who sleep there I was particularly taken by one picture which I don't know whether you're going to be able to see I'll fold it and I'll send it around there's a 28 year old woman who works as part of their uh, social service staff at, at St. Boniface. And one of the things it said in the article, who has committed her life to this kind of work, because that's the calling of her heart. Uh, I remember we had talked about Paul Farmer the week before, and how just touching it is to find people who know early on that this is what they want, this is what will make them content in their lives. And one of the things in the article said that uh, a number of people who are parishioners at St. Boniface had a problem with all of the back pews being filled with sleeping homeless people. They don't smell good. Their stuff doesn't smell good. It's raggedy to have those people in the pews. This is what they say. But, and you know, they can, Father Vitale conducts mass in the morning and all these people are asleep in the back rows snoring. So a number of people who complained about it shouldn't be going on in the church. So they're uh, talking about uh, the the, uh, the Shelley Roeder, who's the director of a partic the partic the, this particular homeless project, uh, is escorted to the altar on her wedding day. So you see <coughs> Shelley Roeder walking down the aisle, and people sleeping in the pews, and she's wearing a wedding dress. It's beautiful, and think about, you know, how you know, can you imagine? getting married in a church or in some place where the whole back third is full of sleeping homeless people sleeping in the pews and I think it's wonderful so that's one way I think where if the vision in your mind is clear enough if the Buddha said it if you had once experienced the pleasure of sharing a meal with someone else you would never eat alone again you would never eat without donating part of your meal to somebody else if you had really experienced the pleasure of doing it, you would never eat alone. The other thing that I wanted to read to you about seeing clearly, as I thought we could do this as an interactive project as well, is uh, I read a review of an opening of A Streetcar Named Desire in uh, New York again. So how many people have seen Streetcar in a movie, in a play, in something? So, uh, talking about this, the director of this play, who said, um, who said this play is universal, and this and this is why he has taped up, uh, put up on the on the uh, uh, bulletin board in the acting studio where they're rehearsing. This particular quote from Tennessee Williams, who wrote it, sounds like Dharma. He said, there are no good or bad people. Some are a little better or a little worse, but all are activated more by misunderstanding than malice. The Buddha would have said that, I think. All are motivated more by misunderstanding than malice. A blindness to what is going on a blindness to what is going on in each other's hearts. That's an important line, a blindness to what's going on in each other's hearts. It was Longfellow who said, if we could but read the secret history of our enemies, all enmity would be erased. Everybody's had a life that makes them the kind of person that they are. So Tennessee Williams goes on to say, Stanley sees Blanche not as a desperate, driven creature backed into a last corner to make a desperate last stand, but as a calculating bitch with round heels. says, that's because nobody sees anybody truly, but all through the flaws of their own egos. 
That's the way we all see each other in life. I thought that was a great line. We see each other through the flaws of our own egos. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I thought it would be a really good thing if we reflected on that for a minute and then talked about what do you think that means? Could you say what that meant to you? What we, what is it? Could you think of an example of what it would be to see someone through the flaw of our own ego? Or how do you see someone, anyone? What flaw, how does that work with you? There you go. What's your name? Nancy. Yeah. So everybody hear that? If I see someone, I'm making a judgment on them. It's because I'm feeling superior. Yeah. And I'm... For whatever reason, you know, even if they just, Nancy's saying that's the flaw in my own ego, and who knows, you know, sometimes I think when I'm feeling superior, that actually maybe the flaw in my ego will, might actually be that I feel uh, incompetent and uh, not superior, that I feel actually lacking, and I'm trying to buck up my own ego by passing a judgment on somebody. But... But it's something, you know, because how do I know? I see someone do one thing, make a judgment. What? The wonderful line from Dylan Thomas, Thou I know would be the first to see our best side, not our worst. And, and the, it's a prayer. Yeah. And to take that attitude, to see the best side, it means we look around and not sink into all the ego traps that, that I see the negatives. So tell it again out loud from Dylan Thomas. Uh, we are not holy, bad, or good. We are not holy, bad, or good. We live our lives under milkwood. We live our lives under milkwood. We live our lives under milkwood. And thou, I know, would be the first. And thou, I know, would be the first. To see our best side, not our worst. To see our best side, not our worst. Mm. Ah, I have to look that up and write that down again, unless you write it out for me. Okay, okay, do it. Yeah. There you go, do it once more out really loud. Second stanza. <laughs> it's the second stanza of Under Milkwood. There you go, come on. It's a lovely pun. We are not holy, bad, or good. We live our lives under Milkwood. And thou, I know, would be the first to see our best side, not our worst. What is Milkwood? The town. Yeah. The town of Wales. It's the only place that the, the only place the name appears in the whole play. Yeah. Is that one stanza? So, you know, and then making that vow to say it's a divine thing to be able to see the best and not the worst in someone. And the Buddha, uh, in Buddhism, we say it this way. We say. Um, the proximal cause for the arousal of metta is seeing the good in someone. That what is a thought arises about so-and-so who did you wrong or so-and-so that you're now having a bad thought about. Okay. That the, the, really the practice, not for so-and-so, but actually for yourself, I, maybe for so-and-so, but for sure for yourself, is to think what's good about them. To really to sweeten your own mind. When I am so aware, this is the other thing, Nancy, I'm so aware that when I am thinking judgmental thoughts on other people, I am really befouling my own heart by doing it. That my heart is much better when I'm thinking, what hath God wrought? Look at this. Look at this person. So different from me in all these ways. These are ways that I wouldn't be at all. Imagine that. Look at this other person, just like that. If I could do that and just recognize them for what they are. 
I could even say this person is not like me at all and decide, you know, there are certain people with whom you have rapport and you seek out to be friends and other people not. They might not be the people with whom I seek out to be friends. I might not have the rapport, but I don't have to have a judgment as a kind of an ill will. Susan. Uh, I often have the hardest time with people who like have characteristics, who are like me, but I mean like I have characteristics I don't like in myself and I say, Terrible, pushy person. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you, the, the, uh, Susan is pointing out the uh, uh, the wisdom of recognizing one's own shadow <laughs> in every judgment. You know, that person is so pushy. Is Susan's uh, example. <laughs> um, I, I I could recognize that shadow myself. Uh, although it took me a lot of time. By the time I told my colleagues I saw that in myself, they said, finally! <laughs> yeah. I had a, a very difficult one that came through ignorance, and it was um, when my mother was dying, she was very ornery. I mean, this. She was mean. And um, we knew it was an indication that she was suffering, but it was really hard not to react and just, oh. And then my brother, oldest brother who's going through radiation, said, mm. I am having such a hard time, I can't even smile. Yeah. And when he said that, my sisters and I completely understood. Yeah. We, we could, there was no way we could get through that until we heard what a brother said. Yeah. And the mother could just be whoever she needed to be. Yeah. yeah. Did you all hear that? Yeah. Did, were you the person who said my mother who died on Good Friday? Mm -hmm. What's your name? And what was your mother's name? Martha Curtis. Oh. So it's not so long. It's just Good Friday. So we're, what? Almost two weeks. Yeah. When we sit in, oh, it's 11. I was going to say when we sit just before we leave. Well, we're, we're leaving sooner than I expected. <laughs> so everybody will have to have a place marker and come back next week and we'll do it. But why don't we uh, sit for one minute for Martha Curtis Linhart and uh, make communally a prayer that the essence of our consciousness, wherever it is, making this transition shift between worlds is peaceful. And that her daughters and her son, who she leaves, sustain each other during this time. What's your brother's name, Bo? Bill. What's the radiation for? I think about him as well, the Lenhart, and the cancer in his neck, and that the radiation should be successful. I am guessing that you sense, as I do, the gratitude of uh, being able to be in a community that will uh, hold each other in care.
May we and all beings be happy and peaceful and free of suffering. Sometimes ringing the bell just seems too loud. I'd like instead of a bell, if you open your eyes and smile at one another, that'd be much better. <laughs> Could actually touch somebody and <laughs> wish them well. <laughs>